The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Would you join me now as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father in heaven, help us to see more of your beauty, more of your majesty, and more of your love in your word this morning. Incline our hearts to your word and open up our eyes to see your truth and unite our hearts to fear your name. And we're asking that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to see your faces this morning as we worshiped together. And this morning's sermon is titled, What to Do When Suffering is Great. So two weeks ago, we looked at what to say. And then last week, we said where to look when suffering is great. Today we say what to do when suffering is great. And our passage is Romans 12, 9 through 21. And as we read it, you might be a little bit worried for me this morning. And you might be a little bit worried for us. Because even a a cursory glance at the text, you can see that there are about 31 imperatives. And we're aiming for about 35 minutes. And so you can imagine about one minute per imperative kind of command that we see there. And we would probably not have much time to elaborate on much else. They're not all imperatives in the original Greek, but all the participles and infinitives have sort of an imperatival thrust. But what I plan to do this morning is not to sort of do a typical exposition where we dissect each and every single one of these. They're all actually pretty straightforward. But what we want to do this morning is to do a little bit of a 20,000 foot flyover of this passage to see how the message of Romans as a whole in chapters 1 through 11 informs now how we can live in verses 9 through 21. And this is how we're going to break down. We want to first see sort of the context of our current culture. And then we want to see the commands in Romans 12, 9 through 21. Then we want to understand the context of the book of Romans. And then now, how do we put these commands into action? And my aim for us this morning is that we would be eager and fervent in doing good. That we would be eager and fervent in doing good. That we would be actually undaunted and undeterred in doing good because of what Christ has done for us already. And so why don't we first look at sort of the culture that we're swimming in right now. We're currently living in a culture of outrage. There are headlines and news articles and news stories that are elicited, that elicit outrage in us. The old adage, if it bleeds, it leads, is still very much true today. Whatever is most violent, whatever is most sort of out there is going to be the front page story. Here's just a small sampling from the headlines as of late. Outrage was directed at Samaritan's Purse when they set up a field hospital in New York City on their own dime in order to help patients of COVID-19 because in their statement of faith, they said, we believe in the biblical design for marriage and sexuality. So outrage for this organization trying to do good. Or outrage was recently directed at J.K. Rowling, the famed and acclaimed author of Harry Potter because of some things she wrote and said about gender and sexuality. 
And then outrage was directed at a health officer in Orange County, and it's not just in Orange County, it's probably all over the United States right now, including death threats because of her mandatory mask rules. So outrage over someone trying to give instruction, outrage over someone sharing their perspective that the kind of cultural tidal wave is unaccepting of. This culture of outrage leads to sort of two things, either escalating outrage on the other side, I can't believe the culture's reacting that way, or more likely, I think it actually leads to paralysis and inaction and indifference increasingly for many people. We think, why do anything at all when I'm going to be labeled, and whatever the as ignorant or uninformed or insensitive or accused of hate speech? Maybe I'll just kind of stand back and, and kind of sit back on this one. Further exacerbating this sort of culture of outrage is that Christianity itself really is offensive to our culture today. There are some aspects of Christianity that the culture embraces, like love your neighbor as yourself, but Christianity as a whole is offensive to the culture in which we live. When it says Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, we really mean that. Without him, you cannot know the Father. So Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Scientology, Jehovah Witness, Mormons, all of it will not result in eternal life. That's offensive to our culture today. Or all mankind are born sinners. People are not mainly or mostly good with just a few mistakes mixed in, but they are totally depraved that we cannot do good apart from God. Or third, no one can earn right standing before God. And someone might say, you mean to tell me that someone who devotes their life to serving the poor or fighting for justice or a billionaire who gives away 99% of their wealth won't have right standing before God? And we say, yes, only Jesus can give you right standing with God. And so we live in a culture today where there is increasing outrage and tension in the air where Christianity really is offensive sort of to the culture that we live in, and then where light is ultimately called darkness and darkness is called light, where things like pornography is protected and the gospel message is considered hate speech. And so Christians should be unsurprised by the hatred of the world. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's Jesus in John 15. So this sets the stage for the question, what do we do in a culture that responds this way? That hates Christianity when it really knows what we believe, it says, I don't want any of that. I only want the love stuff that you guys might bring to the table, but none of the exclusive claims of Christ, the only way, none of that. I don't want any of that. I don't want to hear about your talk of sin. And we live in a culture where everything elicits outrage in this day and time. What do we do? How does God call God's people to live in this world today? What do we do after we've said, we don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you? I think many Christians in this day and time right now are tempted to just withdraw. Withdraw, to do nothing, to say nothing, to be as unoffensive as possible. 
And even in our passage this morning, in Romans 12, 18, it says, live peaceably with all. So there is something good about living in peace with one another. And yet, in this passage this morning, the overall thrust in every single one of these 31 kind of punchy commands, we see, I think, it calls believers to be undeterred and undaunted in doing good because of what Christ has done in and for us. That we want to be those who do good, undaunted in doing good because of what Christ has already done in us. So let me, let me sort of flush that out in different passages in the Bible. Jeremiah 29, 7 says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So Israel is called to seek the good of the city even in the midst of exile. Or 1 Peter 3, 15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we're always to be ready to give a defense for our hope. Or Philippians 2, be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So we see from at least these three passages that in the midst of exile, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, Christians are called to do good, to shine forth as light. We're not to hang back into the shadows, but we're to actually put ourselves out there and do good in the midst of the world. And that seems really difficult right now where you feel like I can't do anything that would be acceptable to our culture right now because of the tidal wave of whatever the issue is that's going on. The Bible does not call believers to sit on the sidelines when the world is burning. When the world burns, believers grab hoses and buckets and fire extinguishers to put out the fire. The Bible calls the church to do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. And we're to make disciples and preach the gospel and to build the church and to serve those around us. So look with me now at Romans 12, 9 to 21. If you'll notice, there's a bunch of short, punchy, sharp commands with very little elaboration. There's very few conjunctions throughout this passage that help us understand Paul's flow of thought and how they all fit together. It's also difficult to pinpoint a particular theme. He talks about love in the beginning, but then he switches to persecution in verse 14. Then he goes back to rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, things within the body of Christ. But then he goes on to look at those who might be evildoers. Verse 17 to 21, repay no one evil for evil. It's also almost proverb-like, each of these commands that we see. They're stated in the positive and then the negative, and then almost restated at various points. And then they draw upon a wide range of teachings from the Old Testament and Jesus and early Christian writings. Paul doesn't necessarily apply any of them in depth for us either. He just gives us this list and then just moves on. So what do we do with something like that? We could take, uh, you know, the next 31 weeks and, and, and just unpack this passage, each and every single one. And that might be useful at some point. But this morning, we're just going to do this broad flyover to say, 
What does it look like for Christians to live in the world today? The first semblance of a theme, we might say, is this general call to love and then specific actions of love. It says, let love be genuine, verse 9. And then he goes on in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then he talks about active, intentional pursuit of honoring God. Do not be slothful in zeal, verse 11. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And so there's this call in general, to honor God, but to love our neighbors. And not only that, it's sort of practical and spiritual. We're to contribute to the needs of the saints and to show hospitality, very practical and tangible realities. But then we're also to be constant in prayer, patient in tribulation. It's holistic. It's also our hearts and attitudes. It's this wide-ranging call to be more and more like Christ. Paul also calls believers not to curse those who persecute them. And so there is this counter-cultural message in 17 to 21. Don't be like the world. Don't return an eye for an eye, but rather be like Christ. This is in step with Jesus' words in Matthew, which is what Pastor Kenny's preaching on downtown this morning. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. So he's rooting this in because you are children of God, we don't react the way the world reacts, but we actually react the way the Father would react. So the aim, if the aim of this message this morning was here are 31 commands, now go and do them all. We would, I imagine, leave here this morning completely exhausted and overwhelmed. How do I possibly fulfill each and every single one of these? We would all get decision fatigue. It's a little bit like this. I've recently become a fan of shopping at Aldi. I used to really not like it because of such limited selection, if any of you have ever shopped there. You know, there would only be a few things and always the off-brand. But I've now come to see it as a feature rather than a negative. Because when you walk in, you don't have to make very many choices. I can go to the jam aisle, which is really not an aisle, it's like a spot, and there's strawberry and there's grape. Both have high fructose corn syrup, take it or leave it. That's the only two choices. If I go into Cub or anywhere else, I have 35 varieties of jam. I get different flavors. I get marmalades and jellies and preserves. I get very different options. I can get fair trade and organic and hand-mashed and chunky style and imported. And the possibilities are endless, and I ultimately leave totally overwhelmed and with nothing to show for. And we might feel a little bit this way when we come to these 31 imperatives, 31 commands from Paul that just list out all the things we're supposed to do And we think, how could I possibly do each and every single one of them? Some of us really conscientious types think, maybe I'll I'll try to at least check off each of the boxes as we go. And yet we know at the end of the day, that's going to be very, very difficult. And that's why this morning, we're glad that the Bible is not mainly about commands. A list of commands that call you to do something you cannot do. It's not a pull yourself up by the bootstraps religion. We have to read this in light of all of Romans 1 through 11 up to this point so that we understand why Paul just lists all these things. 
So what I want to do is rewind now to Romans 1 through 11 to understand why Paul would just give us these 31 fast-hitting imperatives with no explanation. Because if we tried to muster our will to accomplish these 31 things, we'd either accomplish it and be really proud of ourselves, which would be totally contrary to the message of the gospel, or we would fail and be despondent and overwhelmed, which again would not be Paul's intention in giving us these things. So, here kind of this overview and summary of Romans 1 through 11. Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so very at the beginning, right off the bat, the gospel is alone. Gospel is what saves alone. Now, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So not only are all saved by the gospel, only the gospel can save, all have sinned and are rightly condemned. But then Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the bad news that all have sinned falls short of God's glory. Now it says, well, God has actually died for his enemies while they were still enemies so that they would no longer be enemies. And then Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now there is a free gift. It cannot be earned by any list of to-dos, but rather we can come to God and he grants it freely. Romans 8.1 then. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because all those who are in Christ will not be condemned. They have been forgiven. Justified sinners can pursue acts of love because they have been loved and not do it out of guilt and shame. And then Romans 8, 31 and 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is for us and will surely give us all things relating to life and godliness because of what he's done in the gospel. And so these truths from Romans 1 all the way to 11 are the indicative statements of the gospel that remind us that it's not mainly about what we can do, but it's about what God has first done in and through us by his power. And I think this is a reminder that everyone needs all the time. That's why often we speak of preaching the gospel to ourselves because it's so easy to forget, to just move on to the implications of the gospel and to say, now how do I live without first reflecting on what has God done to transform me and to change me so that I would know him and love him and be transformed like him and to look increasingly like him so that I would live in such a way that would honor him. Because the gospel addresses the very root of the issue, which is the issue of sin. So to be a Christian is to have a new allegiance, to be transformed in our hearts and minds, that reordering of our priorities and values. 
And then look with me now at Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is the hinge passage between Romans 1 through 11 and then 12 onward. It says, therefore, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So not only are believers now recipients of God's grace, justified by his mercy, purchased, reconciled, redeemed. Now in light of that, we live as living sacrifices. We are not to be conformed to this world, verse 2, but transformed by the renewal of our minds that by testing we may discern what is the will of God. And so believers are consecrated, not to have some dichotomy between, you know, I'm saved, but I get to live the way that I want, but rather we're saved in order now to live the way God calls us to live because of what he's accomplished. So our right living is to be informed by right thinking, which is to be informed by our right standing with God because of what Christ accomplished in giving us his righteousness. So the Christian responds to God's grace in Christ by now living as those who are transformed. Because we've been justified, we don't look to the world for our acceptance. Because we've been forgiven, we don't wallow in our sins. Because we've been sanctified, we set now our mind on the Spirit. Because we've been loved with an everlasting love, we can now even love those who might persecute us. We can bless and not curse. We can love our enemies. Because we've been known by God, we don't long, we long for others to know God. And because we're heirs with Christ, we don't worry ultimately about getting ahead here on earth because we know we have a heavenly inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So Jesus fulfills what we can't fulfill. That's what we need to first understand before we get to Romans 12, 9 through 21. Jesus fulfills what we can't fulfill. He is the one whose footsteps we walk in. Jesus loved by being reviled and betrayed. He blessed and did not curse. He fed people with fish and bread from his hand who he knew would eventually be those who would cry, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus is our model for being undeterred and undaunted in doing good even in the midst of chaos or persecution or suffering or whatever else may come. When the pastoral staff was talking about this passage on Tuesday, Pastor Sam said, he kind of remarked, Romans 12, 9 through 21 is a portrait of our Savior. And it's true. Jesus is the one who fulfilled each and every single one of these 31 things perfectly. Perfectly. Jesus' love was genuine. He abhorred what was evil. He held fast to what is good. And now Jesus calls us not to an impossible list, but he calls us to be conformed to his image and to look more and more like him. And in fact, if you look at verse 21, do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is a good summary of what Christ accomplished at the cross. That in the midst of all the evil, 
the evil of Jesus being betrayed, the evil of him being mocked and shamed and beaten, an unjust trial, false witnesses being brought, spineless authorities, and ultimately the Son of God who was blameless being crucified. In the midst of all of that evil, Jesus bore it in his body so that through the good of him handing his life over, he might grant forgiveness of sins to all those who would believe in him this morning. That is the overcoming of evil with good that we see in the cross. That he turned evil on its head to destroy evil himself. That Satan, sin, and death were all undone by Jesus' perfect submission and love and sacrifice. And so what I want to highlight this morning for us is that though we live in a world of outrage and hatred... And though we have a list of things we are to do, we have to first understand the gospel, the nature of what God has done to transform us. And we might think I've outgrown those realities, but I just want to call us to these realities again and again. Because the, the trials and the chaos around us might cause us to go back to the old man sometimes. And we need to be reminded of what Christ has accomplished This is not an oppressive and legalistic list that someone holds over you. It's a little bit like a building instructor, inspector, when he comes to your house. And you're doing a home improvement project, and he has a list. And the kind of words that every homeowner, every weekend warrior dreads hearing is, "Uh, you didn't do it right, you got to tear it out and do it again. You didn't do it the right way. That's not how Romans 12, 9 to 21 works, where he comes to you with a checklist seeking to damn you to hell, but instead it's a list of identifying marks and traits for all those who are now in Christ. It's more like a family mission statement that you put on the wall. You might say, our family will love God and eat together and listen well and laugh heartily. Why do we do those things? Because we're part of the family. That's who we are. And so Romans 12, 9 to 21, isn't this oppressive checklist, but it's a picture of now we can live this way because we've been redeemed by the God of the universe. We have Jesus as our only hope. We have life in him. We've been justified. We don't worry about ourselves, but now we can live the way he calls us to live. So in a world of outrage, We are called to do good in light of what Christ has done in saving us and transforming us to be more and more like him. So now how do we put this into action? What does it look like for us to carry out these types of things in these days? I'll admit I've been tempted during the riots to think you reap what you sow. It's biblical. It's in the Bible. I think if, if you've destroyed your neighborhood, then you live in a destroyed neighborhood. And yet I'm so glad that more often than not, because of what Christ has done, I don't ultimately reap what I sow. That in my flesh and in my sin, I don't ultimately reap destruction because Jesus has forgiven me, has paid the cost. And so... Can't we, shouldn't we, as believers in these days, not mainly look to reap what you sow, but rather, oh God, have mercy upon our cities. Lord, would you grant repentance to be sought and given? Would you give rioters 
the grace to find Jesus and for justice to be done. The old man in me wants to say, the food desert in South Minneapolis is what you created. You've made your bed, now sleep in it. And yet the new man in me says, well, I remember living down at 26th and Blaisdell, and those were my grocery stores. And my guess is that 99% of the people living down there had nothing to do with the looting or the riots or the burning or the destruction. And so how now can we help? What does it look like for Christ's church in the midst of all that we're seeing to live as those who've been transformed, to shine forth the beauty of Christ, the superior worth of Christ, the majesty of Christ, the love of Christ. What does it look like for us to live in light of all that we see? I think it's Romans 12, 9 to 21. And you can take your pick. There's plenty to pick from. And my guess is God is bringing some of these commands to conviction of our own hearts of where we might be tempted to go to the old man rather than the new man. Rather to see justice rather than mercy. With Romans 12, 9 to 21 as our backdrop, I want to spur us on to dream new dreams of what it would look like for us as God's people to love and to do good. That we would be undaunted, undeterred to do good, even in the face of hatred or marginalization or being misunderstood or misinterpreted. Our cultural conversation says if you're white, you're either an ally or condemned as part of the problem. But the Bible gives the main categories not of white and non-white, but as sinners and those who have been forgiven. And so as those who are part of the redeemed, who have tasted of the unmerited mercy of God, now what does God call us to do and how do we live? We don't just follow the cultural tidal wave, but we don't just hang back in the shadows and do nothing. We are called to a different set of marching orders. We're called to the marching orders of Christ. We are to be undaunted and undeterred in doing good. And this will look different from the culture, but it'll look different than doing nothing as well. We are Christ's people because we've been justified, because we have been forgiven, because we are sanctified and increasingly sanctified. We know that we will be glorified. And so our hope and faith is in God. And so my aim is not to merely give you a list or to tell you to do this this one thing, but it's for us to do all of those things as the transformed people of God. We have all that we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. He's given us all that we need because we have hope in him. We're not mainly in a defensive posture, but we're to be proactive. We're on the offensive because God's kingdom is being built. His people are empowered by the Spirit to be wise and discerning. How is it that we engage our neighbors and our community and our cities in these days? There is no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. So Christians, we can pursue biblical justice. We can protest brutality, enact reform, love our neighbors, all in obedience to Christ. Not to atone for whiteness or whatever color you may be, but Christians labor out of their new identity in Christ. 
Christians don't ultimately labor out of shame and guilt and out of compulsion, but out of transformed minds and hearts. We can be both compassionate and long-suffering, wise and discerning, quick to listen, slow to anger, slow to speak, not championing Republican values or Democratic values, but God's kingdom values. That's what we want to be known for. And we're going to be mistaken to being on either side at various points. But ultimately, we have marching orders from Christ Jesus. We get to live as those who have not a single worry in the world because we are God's and he is with us. He will never leave us nor will he forsake us. The very words I spoke to Tom Boyer this morning as Emmaus Church goes out, he speaks to us. I will never leave you nor will I forsake you as you go forward, not hang back in the shadows, but as you move forward, undeterred and undaunted in loving, in loving those who don't know Jesus, in loving those who need help, in loving those around us for whatever reason because of what Christ has done. And we have to continually come back to seeing that our hope it's in what Christ has done for us. We are those who have been forgiven. We don't do it to virtue signal or to prove we aren't racist or indifferent, but to shine forth the superior worth and joy we have in following Jesus. He is our Lord. We get to do all the things that we want to do for good because we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God for the joy of all peoples, in all things, through Jesus Christ. That's who he's called us to. So in these coming days, would you pray with me that God would overcome the evil that we've seen? And we've seen a lot of it, up close and personal. Would you pray with me that God would overcome the evil that we've seen with good? The good of the gospel, the good of preaching the gospel, the good that the, his people will live out in these days as believers labor out of transformed hearts and minds. And so let me close with these words that we'll sing in just a moment. So spirit come, put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. May we be found on that last and final day as those who have been faithful, not to do everything because we can't do it all, but to be faithful to do what he's called us to do in these days. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that we would indeed be a people that would be undeterred, undaunted in loving those who do not yet know you. And that we would shine forth as the light of Christ in these cities so that Jesus, you would get all the glory. That you would get all the praise. That more and more would be ushered into your kingdom. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. 
Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.